0: It's the Victorian Variety Show. Number 24, a pudding made of small birds. Industrious and intelligent boys who live in the country are mostly well up in the cunning art of catching small birds at odd times during the winter months. So, my young friends, when you have been so fortunate as to succeed in making a good catch of a couple of dozen of birds, you must first pluck them free from feathers, cut off their heads and claws, and pick out their gizzards from their sides with the point of a small knife and then hand the birds over to your mother, who, by following these instructions, will prepare a famous pudding for your dinner or supper. First, fry the birds whole with a little butter, shallot, parsley, thyme, and winter savory, all chopped small, pepper and salt to season. And when the birds are half done, shake in a small handful of flour, Add rather better than a gill of water. Stir the whole on the fire while boiling for 10 minutes. And when the stew of birds is nearly cold, pour it all into a good-sized pudding basin, which has been ready-lined with either a suet and flour crust or else a dripping crust. Cover the pudding in with a piece of the paste and either bake or boil it for about an hour and a half. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that generally don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. In some cases, I cover a topic that captured my interest some time ago. And in others, I introduce you to something that is almost as new to me as it may be to you, which is one of the things that makes this show so much fun for me, because I'm one of those people who never wants to stop learning. My name is Marissa, and the recipe that I just read is called A Pudding Made of Small Birds taken from A Plain Cookery Book for the Working Classes, by Charles L. May Francatelli. Although, on the one hand, this excerpt made me cringe because I'm a bird lover who frequently posts photos of birds I see on Instagram and rarely eats poultry, as a podcast host, I thought it would serve as an appropriate introduction to Francatelli, whom I'd never heard of until 2 days before I started working on this episode. One night during a commercial break in a show I was watching on Discovery Plus, I was searching for free public domain ebooks to add to my tablet, as I often do. And since food is one of my favorite things in the world, I'm always happy to add more vintage cookbooks to my virtual collection. So, I downloaded Francatelli's book. The second I saw it, But then, as someone with Italian ancestry who's always curious when they come across another person with an Italian last name, I decided to do a Bing search on Francatelli and thought he'd be a great person to do an episode on, in part because I've been wanting to cover more food-related topics on this show, but also because, even though Francatelli seems to have achieved what could be considered celebrity chef status during the Victorian era... There doesn't appear to be a lot of information out there on him today. But given the roles celebrity chefs play in contemporary society, I thought maybe it's time one of their ancestors got a little more recognition. According to an article by Lauren Gilbert called Cook at Buckingham Palace, Charles L May Francatelli, which I'll include a link to in the show notes along with all of the other sources I used in putting this episode together, Francatelli, quote, is believed to have been born, end quote, in 1805 in London. In Charles L. May Francatelli, maitred Yotel and chief cook in Ordinary to Queen Victoria, Susan Flonser tells us Francatelli was the second son of Nicholas Francatelli who was, quote, the first francatelli to arrive in England, end quote, which I thought was pretty cool. But aside from that, all we seem to know about the young Charles is that he spent at least some time in France, eventually attended the Parisian College of Cooking, and studied under Antonin Carême, who was considered one of the leading French chefs of the 19th century. To give you an idea, Wikipedia refers to Carême as, quote, the king of chefs and the chef of kings, end quote, and credits him with identifying the main sauces on which French haute cuisine is based. On returning to England, and based on the information I found so far, I don't know where a Francatelli might have worked as a chef in France or how old he was when he returned to England. He served as chef de cuisine for several noblemen, including the Earl of Chesterfield and Sir Herbert Jenner Fust, before taking a position at William Crockford's St. James Club, a gentleman's gambling club in London that was popularly known as Crockford's Club, in 1839. While at Crockford's, Francatelli met William George Hay. The 18th Earl of Errol, who, in November 1839, became Lord Steward to Queen Victoria. And thanks to a recommendation by Hay, shortly after the chief cook at Buckingham Palace left his position in March of 1840, Francatelli took over as Mir d'Hotel and chief cook in ordinary to the Queen. Francatelli worked at Buckingham Palace for two years until March of 1842. According to an article on Francatelli on the Cook's Guide website, there's been some speculation over the years as to how enthusiastic Queen Victoria was about Francatelli's specialty, French cuisine. And Prince Albert is also thought to have preferred less extravagant culinary preparations. However, If you're up on modern-day celebrity chefs, you're probably aware that a number of them have been accused of having fiery temperaments. And over a century before people like Marco Pierre White and Gordon Ramsay were yelling and cussing at their co-workers in kitchens, Francatelli was earning a reputation for being difficult to work with, you might say. And it seems likely that this reputation ultimately led to his parting of ways with the royal family. In particular, in Charles Elme Francatelli, Crockford's, and the Royal Connection, Colin Smythe cites a Morning Post article from December 2nd, 1841, that tells of a, quote-unquote, fracas at Buckingham Palace between Francatelli and a Mr. Norton, who is identified as the Queen's deputy comptroller. According to the Morning Post, quote, It is well known that broils, jealousies, and ill-feeling, to a great extent, have been existing in the royal establishment ever since the appointment, at the instance of His Royal Highness the Duke of Sussex, of the Honorable Charles Augustus Murray to the office of Comptroller of Her Majesty's Household. That gentleman, immediately on entering office, Caused many old and valuable servants of the royal household to be pensioned or sent to the right about, in order to make way for a large number of French servants who now fill some of the principal offices in the royal establishment. Mr. Norton, by his judicious management, has done much towards allaying the ill feeling among the servants, which this injudicious change naturally created, and, by his straightforward manly conduct, has gained the respect of those over whom he has had control. Francatelli, on the contrary, has kept his department in continual broils, which have been the cause of many dismissals and numerous complaints to the Lord Steward. On Monday last, Mr. Francatelli took an opportunity of insulting Mr. Norton in the presence of all the pages and about 40 others when high words ensued, which ended in a policeman being sent to take Francatelli into custody, but he managed to make his escape before the officer arrived. The result of the investigation was the suspension of Francatelli until the matter shall be laid before Her Majesty and Prince Albert, when there is no doubt that measures will be adopted to prevent a recurrence of such disgraceful proceedings. End quote. Although Francatelli returned to his position at Buckingham Palace following this fracas, Smythe notes that three months' notice was given and none of the sources I looked at were able to verify whether Francatelli gave notice himself or whether it was given on his behalf. But after leaving the palace, Francatelli returned to Crockford's, where his cooking seemed to be greatly appreciated. In the words of William Henry Gregory, a member of Parliament cited by Smythe, Francatelli, quote, was unequaled. There was a first-rate supper, gratis, with the best champagne for those who hungered and thirsted after midnight, end quote. And he remained at Crockford's until they closed in January of 1846. Afterward, Francatelli held positions at a few other gentlemen's clubs, such as the Coventry House Club in Piccadilly and the Reform Club in central London, and another royal household, Marlborough House, which, during Francatelli's tenure, which lasted around two years in the early to mid-1860s, was the home of the Prince of Wales, who would later become King Edward VII. While at Marlborough House, he took on a management position at St. James's Hotel in Piccadilly where he also appears to have been in charge of catering both large banquets and smaller, gourmet dinners that drew the attention of the press. According to the 1868 edition of the Epicure's Yearbook and Table Companion by William Blanchard Gerald, quote, Nobody would for one moment think of comparing the most carefully prepared dinner for 60 with such a menu as Francatelli prepares for half a dozen in Piccadilly. Francatelli is, beyond all question, the greatest artist who is catering, at this present writing, for the Gourmets of London. End quote. After leaving the St. James's Hotel, Francatelli took another management and catering position at the Freemasons Club in London's West End and remained there until shortly before his death in 1876. I realized that I kind of went over all those positions quickly, and according to Smythe's article, Francatelli butted heads with a few of his later employers. But it does also seem to me that his cooking earned him a great deal of respect overall. And because of that, he was able to take on a wide variety of different jobs. And then, there was his writing. The Cook's Guide tells us that although Francatelli was capable of creating elaborate meals that pleased royals and gastronomes alike, he did appreciate simpler forms of cooking and was actually known as something of a quote-unquote culinary economist. This makes me think about what I said a few minutes ago about Prince Albert's alleged lack of enjoyment of extravagant meals, regardless of Francatelli's reason for leaving Buckingham Palace. If this is true about Prince Albert, was Francatelli aware of this when he worked at Buckingham Palace? And if so, did he ignore his employer's preferences and cook what he thought would please royal palates? Unfortunately, based on the information I found, I can't say one way or another. At any rate, this appreciation of more straightforward meals was perhaps best reflected in his cookbooks, starting with The Modern Cook which was first published in the U.K. in 1845 and the U.S. in 1846. This book, which sold well on both sides of the pond, was geared more toward the upper classes. But from what I can see, the recipes are generally short and to the point, with Francatelli pointing out, for example, that his cream bechamel sauce, quote, is not expensive, neither does it require much time or trouble to make, end quote. And that just because something's simple doesn't mean that it's trivial or that caution should be thrown to the winds in its preparation, as can be seen here. Quote, butter sauce, or as it is more often absurdly called, melted butter, is the foundation of the whole of the following sauces. And requires very great care in its preparation. Though simple, it is nevertheless a very useful and agreeable sauce when properly made. In addition, the modern cook devotes one section to quote unquote soups for invalids, which, in addition to timeless mainstays like chicken broth, includes, quote, crayfish broth for purifying the blood. End quote, and quote, decoction of snails for inveterate coughs, end quote, and recommends light soups that Francatelli thought were suitable for infants as well as quote-unquote invalids. Francatelli also realized that members of the working class needed to eat, and appears to have been affected by the amount of food that was regularly wasted in London. So, in 1852, he published a plain cookery book for the working classes, which includes a wide variety of straightforward yet nutritious recipes that could feed a larger family, including numerous options for hot and cold meat dishes. In the case of the latter, he recommended that his readers, quote, never allow yourselves to be persuaded that cold meat dinners are cheap dinners. Just the reverse of this assumption is the fact, end quote. However, the book also includes a number of options for times when meat was in short supply, such as dumplings, puddings, and pies, and soups that could feed up to six people, as well as practical advice, such as, quote, how to make the most of a pig after it is killed, end quote how to cure and smoke hams and make sausages, how to fry and boil fish, and even how to brew homemade beer. And in the introduction, Francatelli recommends putting aside some money to purchase an economical stove and a few pots and pans. This working-class cookery book was followed by several more that seem to have been geared more toward elites, such as the cook's guide and housekeeper's and butler's assistant of 1861, which includes, among other things, quote, marrow toast a la Victoria, end quote, a reference to the seasoned bone marrow on toast that Queen Victoria reportedly ate daily, and the Royal English and Foreign Confectioner, a practical treatise on the art of confectionery in all its branches in 1862. And it appears that Francatelli's writing, on the whole, appears to be limited to his cookbooks. According to Smythe, Francatelli isn't known to have written any memoirs, or to have included very much in the way of autobiographical information in the intros to his cookbooks. And, for example the preface and intro to the edition of the modern cook that I consulted were written by a C. Hermann Sen in 1911, several decades after Francatelli's passing. And in his short intro to a plain cookery book for the working classes, Francatelli briefly describes his object in writing the book before laying out what he considers essential items and what readers of the time could expect to pay for them. This lack of personal information is disappointing not only for those of us who might enjoy reading that type of thing, but it also may be the reason why there's little accurate or consistent information to be found on him compared with other well-known chefs of the early to mid-19th century, such as Louis Eustache Oud and Alexis Benoit Soyer both of whom were born and raised in France, but found fame and fortune in England. Smythe suggests that Francatelli didn't write about himself very much because he didn't have the time, which on the one hand I can understand, given what we've seen about his employment history and also what I know about a chef's hectic schedule from reading Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, which is one of my favorite books of all time. But on the other hand, I'm like, that sounds like a cop-out that he didn't have the time to write about himself. So, even though I was excited about doing this episode, I have to admit that it's been a challenge. I like to give my listeners accurate information as much as possible. And I realize that uncertainty can be difficult for a lot of people. And there are many points in Francatelli's life that I'm still uncertain about but I would also argue that that's why I think it's important for me as a podcaster to look at people like Francatelli and make people aware of what we do know of his life and his works. And who knows? Maybe more information on him will come to light in the future. Of course, having said all that, some of you may have heard of him because he was portrayed by... Ferdinand Kingsley on the TV series Victoria that premiered in the UK in 2016 and was later on PBS here in the States. I personally haven't seen this series yet, but according to Wikipedia, in the series, Francatelli married Queen Victoria's headdresser and he and his wife leave Buckingham Palace to open their own hotel, neither of which seems to have happened in real life. So there's that. But whether or not you heard about Francatelli prior to listening to this episode, I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa D96 slash message. Also even though I have been terrible at keeping up with social media lately, you can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash one or on Mastodon at at marissa at is.nada.live. If you would like to support this show financially, there are a few ways in which you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents a month U.S. at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa hyphen D96 slash support. Or you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash Marissa DF13 on my Linktree page or on the Good Pods app. Also, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And I just want to take a moment to give a shout out to Lindsay of the Ye Old Crime Podcast and Dustin of the Sandman Stories Presents Podcast for spreading the word about my show on Twitter recently. Lindsay and Dustin are fantastic at what they do, and I'm a huge fan of both of their shows. I also feel incredibly lucky to know both of them. I don't get to interact with many people with whom I share a common interest in my day-to-day life, so it really means a lot to me to know that I've met such cool people that I can consider friends by doing this show and thank you so much for listening and for all of your support and feedback. I intend to be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but for now, I'm going to leave you with a few more words straight from the mouth, or I should say pen, of Charles Elmay Francatelli. This is another recipe from a plain cookery book for the working classes, and I liked it not only because no birds, Or other animals appear to have been harmed in the creation of this recipe or because I'm a big fan of pumpkin, but also because I think it gives us a little more insight into Francatelli's attitude toward food and his style as a cookbook writer. Number 114. Pumpkin Porridge am aware that pumpkins are not generally grown in this country as an article of food for the poorer classes and more is the pity for they require but little trouble to rear and yield an abundance of nutritious and cooling food at a small cost the chief reason for the short supply is I imagine the want of knowledge for turning the pumpkin to good account as an article of food I am now about to supply easy instruction to convey that knowledge to whomsoever may stand in need of it. Peel and slice up as much pumpkin as will produce about eight ounces for each person, and put this into a boiling pot with two ounces of butter and a quart of water. Set the whole to boil very gently on the fire until the pumpkin is reduced to a pulp and then add half a pint of buttermilk or skim milk to every person who is to partake of the porridge. You then stir the porridge over the fire for about 15 minutes longer, taking care that it does not boil over. Season with salt and a little nutmeg and eat it with toasted bread for breakfast or any other meal.